Welcome to the second remote podcast as we adapt to life in a pandemic. The Heart of the Kingdom message series connects Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5 through 7, with the heart of the one who preached it. And some people read this sermon and conclude that no one can live it out. To them, these chapters represent the impractical idealism of a dreamer. And then there are those who glibly claim to live by the Sermon on the Mount. And it's best to assume these folks have not really read it. Jesus presented these standards as principles of kingdom living, but he also realized that much more than mere human effort was required to fulfill them. The goals of the sermon are attainable, uh, but only by those who have experienced the new birth and have access by the Holy Spirit's enabling power. Without rebirth, this sermon leads to foolish optimism or hopeless despair. Now, I'm sure that you've read and heard more about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic than you can take right now, so I won't get into all that. But we do know that the worst is yet to come. As testing becomes more widely available, the causes of infection from the virus and deaths related to it are rising dramatically. Late adopters are becoming true believers in the seriousness of this epidemic. Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, who has been the clearest voice in this crisis, he said this, when you're dealing with an emerging infectious diseases outbreak, you're always behind where you think you are if you think that today reflects where you really are. A return to life as we knew it isn't weeks, but months away. And depending on our ability to follow health protocols and flatten the curve of infection is when this thing will end. And by now, you likely have a family member, coworker, or friend who's contracted the virus. The shelter-in-place decree has moved us inside our homes and interrupted our routines, straining family relationships as we live in increasing isolation. The fiscal strain placed on businesses and personal finances adds another layer of stress that only heightens our health concerns. Now more than ever, we need some good news. And even though there isn't much available from the kingdoms of this world, we can be encouraged by good news from the kingdom of God. Kingdom righteousness, as described in the Sermon on the Mount, is good news. And Jesus began his ministry with this declaration of good news for people least likely to receive it. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. A pandemic is a great leveler. All of us, to varying degrees, are poor, captive, and blind, marginalized by a virus without a cure. Jesus' proclamation promises deliverance for the in-between and the unseen. And later, Jesus embellished his proclamation in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus uttered, a description of life in the kingdom of God, and an explanation of how he expects his followers to live. This wasn't news from the kingdoms of this world. Jesus was reporting from the kingdom of God. Now, last week, we worked through the Beatitudes 
in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And these describe the condition or state of a kingdom person's heart. Now, Matthew 5, 17 through 30 is Jesus' description of the lifestyle that flows from that heart. And as we come to the text, interest in Jesus had swelled to the point that he could not escape the mounting crowds. So he retreated to a mountainside and preached over multiple days. It says he opened his mouth and taught them about life in God's kingdom. Beginning with Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of these, the least of these commands, and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the righteousness that Jesus speaks of in this section of Scripture uh, is a righteousness that aligns with the character of God. The Greek term for righteousness refers to whatever is approved and acceptable to God. Righteousness in the Bible has three aspects, legal, moral, and social. Legal righteousness is justification, entering a right relationship with God. Moral righteousness is the resulting character and conduct that pleases God. Social righteousness is equality and justice in human relationships, integrity in business dealings, and honor in home and family affairs. Now, while fair sake righteousness was conformity to external rules, the blessed ones have a righteousness of heart, mind, and motive that guides their conduct. This is not self-righteousness. This is righteousness formed by Christ's life. And Jesus used a teaching formula no ancient prophet or contemporary scribe used before. Truly, I tell you, speaking in his own name and in his own authority. And as a result, he was accused of replacing the Old Testament with his own code. Jesus declared plainly that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And everything Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is found in the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses or the Torah. There are 613 commands given in the Torah, which Israel failed miserably to keep. Later, the prophet Isaiah predicted a Messiah would come to lead Israel in keeping God's laws. And when Jesus came, he did not come to abolish the law, but to perfectly fulfill it and make a way for broken human beings to fulfill the law. Six times when Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he's not contradicting the Torah. He's correcting the oral traditions of the Pharisees. And in each saying, he goes below the surface obedience promoted by the Pharisees to what truly drives our behavior. Back to the text, Matthew chapter 5, beginning again with verse 21. You have heard 
that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, uh, or fool, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And so Jesus talks about the radical need uh, to be obedient to the righteousness of God that is reflected in the kingdom of God. Now, the best way to understand the shocking nature of his teaching for those gathered to hear it there by the mountainside is to go to the end of the sermon. And in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. The term translated amazed means to be utterly astonished, astounded, dumbfounded, stupefied. Their minds were blown. This is the same term that was used by the disciples with the great catch of fish on the Sea of Galilee. It's the same term that was used to refer to the reaction of the disciples at the empty tomb. So how in the world could anyone live this out? How could this be good news? Kingdom righteousness is good news because it isn't about keeping codes. Kingdom righteousness is something that must come from the heart, the condition of the heart, and it flows from the heart, and the result is righteousness. Now, Jesus wasn't interested in behavior modification, the tip of the iceberg. Instead, Jesus goes to the ice underneath, to the thoughts, intentions, and motives that drive behavior, deep dives into human brokenness. Kingdom righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the passionless law-keeping of the Pharisees because it came from the heart. It wasn't just refraining from murder. It was not even harboring anger. It wasn't just offering a sacrifice to be reconciled with God. It was being reconciled with someone before offering the sacrifice. First go, then come. If you have an unpaid debt and your creditor takes you to court, humble yourself, seek reconciliation, settle out of court. It wasn't just refraining from adultery, but not harboring lust. And there are six, you've heard it said, contained 
throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and each of these reflect the same need to go way below the surface. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. Well, you might think, well, I've never killed anyone. I'm okay. But I say to you, if you're angry and call someone a fool, you've broken the command. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, you might think, well, I've never been involved in infidelity. But I say to you, if you look at another person lustfully, you've broken the commandment. You've heard it said, do not break your oath. Do not swear at all. Well, you might think, well, dagnabbit, I don't use bad language. But I say to you that if you go beyond yes or no, you've broken the commandment. You've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. You might think, well, they started it. But I say to you that if anyone slaps your cheek, turn the other. If they want your shirt, give them your coat. You've heard it said, love your enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, you might think, well, I'm doing that. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus took things to a whole new level. Knowing and following Jesus means going to that depth as fundamentally different human beings that begins with the transformation of our hearts. Jesus dives into our character, into what we're really like so that he can change it. Now, the Pharisees thought that they had a sparkling smile, but they were actually missing a front tooth and they weren't even conscious of it. Uh, And this is something that I've personally experienced recently. 50 years ago, my brother Robert slapped a Coke bottle into my mouth, breaking a front tooth in half. And in recent years, the crown covering it failed, as well as the bone supporting it, so it was pulled in preparation for an implant. And if you're familiar with that process, the first step is a bone graft, then wait 10 weeks to install a post, then wait 10 weeks to put on a crown. And a flipper bridge serves as a temporary crown during this process. Well, recently on a vacation with friends uh, traveling to Costa Rica, uh, the flipper broke. (laughs) And for four days, uh, I talked and smiled without a front tooth. And this impacted me emotionally and socially. I was constantly aware of the huge gap right up front. I became reticent, sitting quietly in conversations I would usually participate in. I automatically covered my mouth when I did speak. I was painfully self-conscious of my comedic smile. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pointed out to the Pharisees that while they thought their lives were a sparkling smile, um, there was something missing. There was a huge gap between their self-righteousness and reflecting God's righteousness. In other passages, Jesus likened the Pharisees to whitewashed tombs that look great on the outside, but on the inside are dead and unclean. They believed in God, uh, but were not converted to God's way of life. Living a spiritual life requires a change of heart, a conversion that leads to a long, quiet, urgent process of transformation. These leaders were just as dead as the Gentiles and sinners they condemned. Jesus' expansive teaching on the law condemned their lifestyles and demanded a deep dive into their thoughts, motives, and character. Because righteousness is not an attainment. It's not virtues to master. 
These are not skills to hone. We don't take the teaching in Matthew chapter 5 and make a list and try to complete the list. We're not getting the point. The preparation for righteousness is being in the condition of being poor in spirit and poor in heart. And this isn't behavior modification. It's a complete do-over. It's a genuine conversion. This is Christ's life poured in us. And the spiritual practices that we pursue uh, are not to prove ourselves somehow more righteous than the next, but actually to open up that space for Christ to fill. This is the only way a person can surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, which Jesus condemns. The Sermon on the Mount, it just shames shabby human performances, but yet in those who are followers of the Lord Jesus, it stirs dreams of a better world. If Christians wholeheartedly accept his standards and values and we seek to live by them, we will become the radically different society that Jesus intended us to become. But all of this righteousness in his teaching and how it comes into our lives and how, how it may be expressed, it, it absolutely requires the presence of God. Righteousness requires the presence of God. Now, a key term that Jesus uses repeatedly in his sermon, you may have noticed, is the kingdom of heaven, which describes a particular reality in the kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew's gospel was written to convince Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, so it contains some unique terms and notions familiar to the Jews. The Jews believed that when God separated the heavens from the earth, heaven was formed with three levels. The first heaven was the atmosphere, imminent, close to the earth. This is the place Jesus refers to as the kingdom of heaven. This is space he fills. Jesus is the link between God and mankind, between heaven and earth. And you might remember a story from Jacob's life fearful that his twin brother Esau would find him and take his life. One night, using a stone for a pillow, Jacob had an amazing dream of a ladder that reached from earth to heaven, angels ascending and descending on it. And in John 1, 51, Jesus told his disciples that you will see heaven open up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, Jesus is the son of man. Jesus is the fulfillment of Jacob's dream. The good news is that Jesus is our ladder, filling our emptiness with his, with his presence. Now as I close, have you ever wondered why the last week of Jesus's life is referred to as his passion? Because typically we use this term to describe intense emotion, but it also refers to a state of being acted upon or affected by something that is external to us. And in this COVID-19 outbreak, our world has entered its passion. Something external to us is having an effect on us. And this passion is about waiting. Um, Passion is about suffering. Passion is about not being in control. And I think that we've all felt something of that 
in the last few weeks. However, it's in this passion that true faith forms. In his book, uh, The Pastor, that I just finished while I was on that vacation uh, without a front tooth, um, the author Eugene Peterson cites uh, Denise Levertov poem that closes with this line, every step and arrival, every step and arrival. Levertov uses the phrase as, as a description of her development as a poet, but it struck me as the nature of our spiritual development as well, especially during this crisis. As we follow Christ, every step is an arrival toward the new creation that we are becoming. Each day is a new reality. Each moment, he calls us to enter a bit further as his image is formed in us more fully. Every step and arrival, going, but without knowing. We keep going without knowing the outcome or when this crisis will end. But as we do, may each breath we take and each step we make be an arrival to become the person Jesus not only said we should be, but the person he said we can be. 